Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Martin Arnold, the FT's banking editor. Joining me in the studio is Nicholas McGore, our retail banking correspondent, and Hannah Murphy, our city correspondent. We'll be here also hearing from Carlo Messina, chief executive of Italy's Intesa San Paolo. First, we'll be discussing how technology companies are taking a growing market share of retail banking services as they step up their challenge to traditional lenders. Then we'll be discussing the news that four former Goldman Sachs employees have won the right to lead a class action lawsuit over sexual discrimination in the US. And finally, we'll be hearing about how over the Easter weekend, Barclays became the first British bank to hive off its UK consumer facing operations from the rest of the group to comply with ring fencing rules. So starting with forecasts that fintech companies are going to take an increasingly large chunk of customers, particularly in mass market financial services. This story is based on two things. One is the comments of Intesa San Paolo's chief executive, Carlo Messina, and secondly, an analyst report from Citigroup. So in an interview with Mr. Messina, I started off by asking him how he thought the digital disruption would affect banks and whether this was a concern for him. We have introduced the instant payment that is more or less equivalent to what Google, Facebook can do. So I'm not telling that we will not lose a portion of revenues because it is clear that there could be a threat and in our plan we have already embedded a portion of uh, revenues coming from payments Mm. that can be reduced. But at the same time, it is not a killing factor for us because we decided to have the right combination between the different segments in which we think that on some segments we can be clear winner. On the other, we can try to play the game. And Mr. Messina followed up by talking about how this was very much influencing the bank's strategy in going more towards asset management, private banking and insurance markets, which are more focused on the older, wealthier customers that are more attached to traditional banking services. If you make the segmentation of your client base, you have the family, so mass market, then you have affluent, you have private client, ultra-high-net-worth, so a lot of kind of clients with different needs. So you can have competition on payment system, especially in the mass market family. But if you go in the very high yield clients from a bank perspective, what the clients need is to look in the eyes. So they have to trust you if they have to give money in order to be sure that you can manage in the proper way the money that you are giving. So With this kind of clients, it is very difficult if you have the right relationship managers with the right reputation, with the right approach with the client, that you can be under the competition of a fintech company or a Google, a Facebook. 
So, Nick, you've been looking into this for us. What do you think is going on here? Do you think that the threat from fintechs to traditional banks is accelerating? Yeah, I think perhaps Mr. Messino is maybe being unusually honest in actually talking about expecting to lose market share, but he was articulating a pretty common concern among most of the established banks, which is that everyone pretty much is acknowledging that things are changing. There's a lot of respect for actually what the various fintech challenges have been doing and an awareness that the banks really do need to adapt. And I think that's what the city research is confirming, that he's not an outlier in expecting this. Research from the analysts at City basically predicting that banks in North America could lose more than a third of their revenues from traditional savings, lending and investment activities to tech-focused rivals. And I think you're already seeing in certain areas, companies starting to maybe take a little bit of a bite around the edges of the established banks territory in areas like payments with companies like TransferWise or Revolut in the UK, who've also got a lot of customers signed up, mainly focused on foreign exchange. But also in the sort of SME space, you have companies like Oak North, who just a couple of weeks ago reported their first profit. And that was a bit of a sign as well that these aren't just ideas anymore. People are kind of talking a lot. They're actually starting to make sustainable businesses that are making money as well as just garnering enthusiasm from people. The city forecasts are pretty striking. One thing that you often hear from banking executives is that they fear more the move of big tech companies into financial services than they do perhaps some of the upstart fintechs, which are growing very fast, as you say, Nick, but they are pretty small still. But the real fear is something like Alibaba or Tencent in China, where they've moved into financial services and taken big share of the Chinese payments market. If you saw that in the West with Facebook or Google or Amazon, and we are starting to see them incrementally move more into financial services, that could be a real worry for the banks because they've got real scale, they've got real resources to throw at this. Yes, certainly. I think we had a couple of weeks ago the first reports of Amazon looking at working together with existing banks like JP Morgan in this case to start offering current accounts for the first time. They've already started going in in some areas offering loans to retailers who sell through Amazon and yeah, on a practical level that could be a much bigger challenge for the established banks. If a really good Nimmo Young startup comes in and starts doing something well, that's a lot easier, one, to either copy or two, if they have to simply buy up. Um, no bank is going to be able to buy Amazon if they really want to make a move in there. That's going to be difficult. I think one thing that is working in their favour at the moment, however, and that may discourage someone like Amazon from trying to go all in and do a kind of full service banking offering is whether they can actually really be bothered with the regulation and everything that comes with that if they really want to expand fully into FinServe. And um, Carlo Messina was very interesting on this question of the big tech companies and talked about this in the context of the backlash we've seen recently against the big tech companies on issues of privacy and whether there's a trust in these big companies to use people's data properly. And we've seen that with the whole issue around Facebook and Cambridge Analytica. And here's what he had to say about that. I have to tell you that I think that the reputation of the banking sector is, uh, from this point of view, positive, because I think that at the end, uh, the clients are relying on the relationship manager. So again, it's important uh, the kind of trust that you have in the person that is managing uh, your account, your money. I'm talking mainly about Inter San Paolo, so I have to tell you that if you ask yeah. to my clients, you, have, you prefer to have your information, your data with your relationship manager or with uh, uh, Google or other, they can answer, I prefer Inter San Paolo. So yeah. I'm pretty sure of this kind of, of situation. Uh, 
but the increasing uh, trend will be that uh, this partner, apart from the, the situation of Facebook treating the data, but, but mm. in a sense, uh, there could be probably an increasing trust also in, in companies that can manage information, not being in a bank. Moving on to our next item now, we're going to have a look at Goldman Sachs. So the story that's come out this week is a court ruling in the US where four former Goldman Sachs employees have won the right to lead a class action lawsuit over sexual discrimination more than seven years after two of them initially accused the Wall Street Bank of systemically favouring men over women. And joining me here to discuss what this means is Hannah Murphy, our city correspondent. Hannah, what are the complaints against Goldman and how come it's taken so long for this to come to fruition? The class action lawsuit is based on historic events dating back to the late 90s and early 2000s. Uh, You've got four women, all Goldman Sachs employees, claiming that the bank's policies led to better pay and promotion prospects for male employees in the US, while the female staff were discriminated against. The judge, in her ruling looking at this, dismissed one of the original parts of the complaint, which alleged that Goldman had fostered this sort of discriminatory boys club type atmosphere where women were sort of routinely sexualized. So that part was dismissed by the court. But the four women will now be able to press ahead with the rest of the claims, which is essentially that the company knowingly had policies which, in their words, had this disparate impact on women. The judge referred to both anecdotal and statistical evidence in her ruling. So she cited an expert report that showed that female vice presidents at Goldman were paid 21% less than their male counterparts and female associates were paid 8% less. And as to anecdotal evidence, the judge said that she'd received sort of emails, business records, internal and external complaints around a whole range of things from sort of sexual harassment of women by male colleagues, gender stereotyping, pregnancy stereotyping, Mm. verbal abuse, sexualised banter. Right. That's uh, pretty damning stuff. What did Goldman say in response to this? The bankers denied all the claims, but the judge said that the claimants had provided significant proof, both that this had gone ahead, but also that Goldman was aware of these gender disparities and had failed to resolve them. Okay. Clearly, in today's climate, with the whole Me Too movement, this is pretty damning for Goldman. But how bad could it be, this suit? Because there's more than just these four women that could join it now, right? Right. So it could be significant financially. So if successful, it's a class action lawsuit. So that would mean as many as 2,300 women would be eligible for compensation. Mm. So that's all female associates and vice presidents who've worked in Goldman's three main revenue-producing divisions in New York since July 2002. And if they were based elsewhere in the US, that would be from September 2004. So that's sort of the financial impact. But it could also, as you say, be significant reputationally. It's coming at a time of sort of growing pressure on companies, not just financial services companies, to improve conditions for women in the workplace, whether that be around better pay, ensuring greater representation at senior level, wiping out discrimination. As you say, we've had a number of awareness campaigns, such as the Me Too campaign around sexual harassment, which went viral towards the end of last year. Our colleague Madison's coverage of sexual misconduct at the Men Only fundraising dinner in London, which was attended by people in the finance industry, among others. 
And then you've also got gender pay coming under a harsher spotlight from regulators as well as the public. So in the UK, this week, new rules are coming in that will require all big companies to publish their average gap. This week, yeah, exactly, online. And Goldman have already reported, I think. Yeah, so for Goldman, the picture isn't too rosy. Of 32 people on their management committee, four are women, and looking specifically at their UK gender pay gap, which they reported last month, that stood at 36.4% average. But last month, the company announced putting in new targets. So uh, one target was to ensure that women make up half of its new analysts by 2021. And it hopes to broaden that out in future. So it looks like it's trying to take action to tackle this. Well, we'll see. Thank you, Hannah. Switching to our final item of the day now to Barclays, which over the Easter bank holiday weekend completed the spinning out of its retail banking operations in the UK, hiving them off into a separate operation as it's required to do under the so-called ring fencing rules that were introduced in the UK in response to the financial crisis and an attempt to prevent the taxpayer ever having to bail out banks again. Nick, you've written about this. This is a pretty monumental effort, wasn't it, to carve out these assets and customers. Give us an idea of the scale of this thing. Yeah, I mean, it's been a pretty major project for Barclays. As you said, the ring fencing efforts have been kind of a key part of the post-crisis reforms and all of the big banks are having to separate some of their units for it. But it's been particularly complicated for Barclays and also HSBC because they're the two British banks with the biggest investment banking units and international operations. So it's a lot more complicated for them to extricate all the different parts. It's taken Barclays about three years and they've spent almost, I think, and they said they'd come in slightly under their budget, but within the ballpark of around a billion pounds over the period. Yeah, so I think Ashok Faswani, who heads up the new Ring Fence Bank, he was partly joking when he said it would be the biggest banking startup ever. You know, they're very much still part of a single group. But that does, I think, give you a sense of the scale of the move. And it's a separate entity in that it has to be funded separately. It has separate governance. But obviously, the part of the bank that's now not in the ring-fenced entity, so the investment banking operations and the foreign operations, those are in another unit. They're both owned by the parent group. So shareholders still own shares in all of this. It's just that there's been a legal firewall, if you like, put in between these two businesses so that if a crisis happens, regulators can more easily keep the part that they really care about, which is holding the money of UK retail depositors, separate from perhaps a bit that might be more risky, like investment banking, and that bit could be shut down whilst keeping this bit operational. Yeah, so you've essentially got, under the overall Barclays Group, you've got now three separate parts. One that contains the investment bank and also corporate banking for sort of big companies. Another one, which is Barclays UK, is the bit that's gone through this whole process, got a new banking license, etc., has its own board, has to hold its own capital and so on. That will have all the consumer-facing businesses. And then there's a third part, which is the sort of group service company, because they're all still kind of tied in on the Barclays IT infrastructure and sharing it. There were worries initially that Barclays was going to struggle to create two standalone units that could fund themselves separately. Have they managed to achieve that? Yeah, although the focus when we're talking about it and kind of simplifying it is that, you know, you have mostly it's investment bank on one side, consumer facing thing on the other. The actually when you get down into the details, it's a little bit more complicated. And um, one of the most interesting aspects for them has been where they've drawn the line at who ends up in which bit. 
So in Barclays' case, the big corporate clients will be in the non-ring fence bank, but small and medium-sized businesses in the new one. And having corporate banking in the investment banking side and all of their big deposits, that makes things simpler for the investment bank in funding itself. But it's also interesting where they drew the line on the SMEs. It was a much lower turnover level than most banks would choose. It's only companies with less than six and a half million pounds of turnover. And there's a hope from Barclays' side that that will make that business banking arm a lot more specialised to serve that segment, which is something that uh, the big banks have kind of come in for a lot of criticism of their treatment of that area in the past. Now, Barclays has got a new investor, an activist investor, that's taken a 5% interest in the bank recently. And that's led to a lot of speculation about what Edward Bramson's his name and what he might push for. We don't know yet, but um, some people speculate he might push for a breakup of the bank. And some people say now that Barclays has ring-fenced itself and split itself in two, it makes a breakup easier. You could just spin off the investment bank more easily and keep the UK retail bank whole. Is that true? Because it sounds more complicated than that. Yeah, so you're right. It's definitely a thing that people have been pointing out. And um, a lot of people in the industry seem to think that from Mr. Bramson's point of view, pushing for a breakup is a kind of obvious tactic that he might pursue. But uh, the ring fencing process doesn't necessarily make that much easier for him because if you did want to separate off the investment bank, although most of the consumer facing business is in the ring fence, you'd end up having to rejig all of the corporate banking set up again, plus private banking and all their kind of high net worth clients, which have already just, they've spent three years and a lot of money going through a load of big changes and you'd have to push that right back through again. Plus they'd have to try and separate everything out from their shared IT infrastructure, which is never an easy task when it comes to big legacy banks, as we've seen on multiple occasions in the past. Yeah, that's true. And just staying with Barclays, finally, the bank had some, I guess, good news, even though it was a $2 billion fine last week, but um, it seems to have gone down reasonably well. What happened and why has it gone down well? This is a $2 billion fine they've agreed with the US Department of Justice, which is to do with the selling of mortgage-backed securities in the run-up to the financial crisis. As you say, $2 billion is a lot of money. It doesn't usually sound like good news, but um, it was less than a lot of people had feared and a bit of a vindication for Barclays after a lot of their rivals settled with the DOJ much earlier in 2016 and ended up paying much bigger amounts. So $2 billion, although ideally they wouldn't have been paying anything for it if they were going to have to. I think people were pretty pleased. So they paid um, off. Hmm. Essentially, yeah. Okay. Nick, thanks very much. That's it for this week. All that's left to do is to thank Nick and Hannah for their contributions and thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all the latest banking stories at ft.com banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTER Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.